Hi, I am Amanda Kassar and welcome to the Financial Secrets Revealed podcast, where I have collected the wisdom from some amazing people around the world to understand better their money story. I have financial advisors, multi-million dollar corporate executives and those surviving on Centrelink, even running global charities. I hope you enjoy listening to the episodes as I speak with these incredible people about their stories. Welcome to the show, David Batchelor. It's lovely to have you. Thanks very much, Amanda. It's great to be here. Well, not here, actually. I'm still sitting in my isolating room in the UK. In so the UK. It depends when people are watching this, but we're still in the throes of the pandemic. And so I'm enjoying being at home all the time, sort of. But you're about to be opened up, apparently. So that'll be exciting. Yeah, yeah, that'll be good. Now, I think I met you in Florida a few years ago at an MDRT conference. I think you were speaking there and um, with mutual friends all went out to dinner and got chatting probably over a really good piece of steak or sushi, I can't remember which, about our businesses and found out that like most people, you accidentally became a financial advisor but started out your career as a drummer. So how did that happen? Yeah, I don't think any of us come into this by design do we most of us kind of just happen into this business by accident and when I left school I was a professional musician a percussionist mostly doing drums but I did lots of stuff and I did most of my work in the West End where I'd go in because I still today I'm still a perfect sight reader so I could go into a show and they'd put down the music and I just play the music it's like a machine it just all works so when someone wants to have a week off of Phantom of the Opera or um, Starlight Express I'd go in and and I'd do that and that was my intention until I decided I wanted to buy a house. And uh, what you could probably appreciate is that, that drummers can't get mortgages. Nobody wants to lend money to a drummer. <laughs> so the way over this was, thought, I know I'll do it. I'm just going to get a job at a bank. In those days, so this was late 80s, if you could walk and chew gum, you could get a, a job at a bank. Anyone could do that. So I thought, oh, I could do that. I'll do that for, you know, perhaps during the day. Because the music was virtually all in the evening. There's not much day work unless you did some session work and I wasn't doing much of that. And so it was all evening work. So I, thought, I can do that during the day. And then once I've got the mortgage, then perhaps drop the and go back to full-time drumming. And so I got this job with a bank and it turned out I was actually by accident quite good at it, which then meant I was poached by another bank, which ultimately became Citibank. And from there, things rolled on and, you know, the music work kind of went down and the financial work kind of went up until my nan passed away. So back in 1991, my nan passed away and she left me £9,000. And so almost exactly the same time, the company I was working for, which is now Citibank, had averaged out bonuses because I was running a branch and used to get a manager's bonus. And then the new CEO thought it would be a very good idea so everyone gets the same bonus, regardless of how profitable you are. So I was in the top three out of 97. So then my bonus was up there, suddenly moved down to, there to the average of 97. So I was quite fed up with this chap. So in a heat of unprepared action, I told him I'm not going to be around anymore. As I just received this money from my nan. So that's £9,000. And I used that to start the business, which in those days was old-fashioned selling life insurance, you know, like we all did in those days, selling savings plans and life insurance. And that's how I ended up with my own company, just because I was fed up with this guy and I had this £9,000 in the bank. I don't know it's like when you started, but you think you know everything until you suddenly start to do it and you suddenly realise you know nothing about running a business. 
Yeah. <laughs> I think the older I get, the less I realise I know, actually. <laughs> I was so smart when I was 20. <laughs> yeah, you know everything then. You know everything then, don't you? Well, you've got a, a toddler. I suppose Jack's probably about four now. I'm sure he knows everything. So, At five, yeah, you think he would do, yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I have to say. All over the old man. Now, one of my favourite questions to ask everybody is what influence your family had on your beliefs about money. Now, you've got a really interesting background coming from sessional work to work in a bank to running your own business. What sort of jobs did your parents have and did they give you any lessons about money, whether spoken or unspoken? Yeah, I think there was a lot that came from that and not by design, I think. My dad owned a building company. It sounds very grand, like a building company. It was him, like four or five guys, and they'd go and put up extensions and that, and that kind of thing. Uh, my dad was a great guy, you know. He was um, sort of the earth guy. He'd be always the first person to put his hands in the pocket to help somebody. But he wasn't very good with money, and he was made bankrupt twice. And I remember when I was 14 coming home from school, I remember my bike camera came in up the little drive that we had and kind of like went into the front door and there was a knock on the door. And it was Bayliss who had come to repossess Dad's car. Because I, um, I remember because it was this, it, my dad liked cowboy boots. I don't know why. Like we live in South London. <laughs> we used to wear cowboy <laughs> boots, which was quite unusual. Close to Texas. It was close to Texas. <laughs> and so he had this big Jeep Cherokee, which we didn't have those in the UK at that time. So it's a big gold thing. And they came and repossessed it. And I remember that at the time and seeing, you know, what was all this about? And fortunately the house was in mum's name, so we didn't lose the house, that kind of stuff. But, you know, like everything was lost. And when you see that, it makes you realise that the pain of losing what you've got, and I think that makes you inherently more cautious. And that has affected both the way I think about my business and businesses and how I think about my own personal money and how I train clients and how I train my family in, in that actually you've always got to make sure the downside is protected because otherwise you get carried over which is it and when you see it twice you know going through it once was bad enough but he went through it the second time when, when I'd left home so I'd been about 2021 20, when he's made bankrupt for the second time and I remember I said to him right because he couldn't afford a lawyer so I said I'll come to the bankruptcy court with you so I went there and it's pretty much just to stop my dad effing and blinding at the bankruptcy uh, receiver because my dad would have a very short fuse <laughs> and it would only make things worse so yeah so I think you know that kind of family background I did really influence my caution when it comes to my own financial planning advising clients and what we do with the business and yet your brother became a builder anyway saw all that <laughs> my brother became a builder and it was equally as unsuccessful Look, I think that's just the highs and lows of the building trade and it's, it's exactly the same here in Australia. It it's never rains but it pours or there's absolutely nothing. I mean, at the moment since the pandemic, we've had an absolute rush on houses and we can't get timber and steel. So building companies are actually paying people to get out of their contract. There's all the work there but we can't get the supplies. So, Well, that's the same around the world, isn't it? I had our team conference last week and I gave everybody a, a copy of the old Clayton book, you know, The Richest Man in Babylon, which if anybody's watching or listening to this, haven't read it, then, then read that book. Because if you just do what that book says, and bear in mind that book's probably 70 years old now, yes. then you know, my brother and my dad wouldn't have had an issue. So it's that old simple thing, you know, learn to live on 70% of your income and so save the other 30%. Yeah. Whereas my dad learned to live on 110% of his income. <laughs> so you said your mum was a bit more frugal. She was the one who'd sort of stashed the money to cover taxes and make ends meet. So how did it all impact her? Well, you're right. 
my mum and dad come from a very working class background and we might remember people talking about having tins and my mum would literally have tins because dad would deal with lots of cash and she would just take the cash and, and stuff it in the tin. So there was enough money to pay for that bit of mortgage or to pay for this or to pay for that. And I think without her having that bit of common sense behind them, we wouldn't have had anything really. So mum has always been like that. My dad's passed away last year now. And so I've become even closer to my mum. And even now she's telling me the stories about, well, you know, dad never knew that I took this money. I just take the money out of his jeans and hide it over here. So he didn't spend it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, cute. So you first learned about money by working at the bank, but you also told me a really cool story about a guy at school that you got a really good lesson from who wanted to do some fundraising. Can you share that? So, yes, when I was 14, I was at school and we had a new teacher come in, Mr Baldwin he was, Graham Baldwin, his full name. And uh, Mr Baldwin had teached at a private school and he'd watched a television television programme on the BBC where this they'd sent 30 or 40 guys from a a state school into private school to see if it would change them, which it did, and they did really successfully. And the BBC said to the teacher, well, would you come, now come and teach at the state school and we'll see if you can have an impact? And this guy said, no, I'm not going to do that. That's crazy. <laughs> and Mr. Baldwin was watching this and he thought, I could do that. And so he literally left the school where he was in Oxford and came to our school, which is a state school. And his mindset was totally different to any teacher I've ever come across. An example of this is that We'd been forever trying to raise money to put a roof over the swimming pool. There was an, an old swimming pool in the school grounds, which no one used. It was an outdoor thing. And forever they wanted to have a, a roof over the, over the school. Sorry, over the swimming pool. And there was never enough money for it. And every year there was this fundraising thing. You know, you had the temperature chart and it was going up and never going up. And my mum went to a PTA, Parent Teachers Association meeting, where Mr Baldwin was there for the first time. And they were talking about this. And Mr Baldwin said, he said, well why don't we just borrow the money and build it? And everyone said, well, you can't borrow money, you can't do that, what are you doing? We don't do that sort of thing. He said, well, of course we can. Anyway, like about a week later, he came back, he said to school, there you go, there's the money. It was, I, I don't know, something like 15,000 pounds. And he maxed out one of his credit cards and take out a personal loan. He said, there you go, there's the money. He said, you've got three years to pay me back. And everyone was like, what? He said, now you've got to do it, haven't you? And of course the roof went up and it was fantastic. Of course we paid him back. But what it showed was, the importance of taking action, taking responsibility. He took responsibility to solve the thing rather than everybody else would just kick can down the road. Um, I learned a great many things uh, from Miss Baldwin. And, and interestingly, three, maybe four years ago, I was talking about a couple of other stories about Mr Baldwin to one of my pals uh, over Christmas. And he said to me, my, my friend, he said, did you ever tell Mr Baldwin you know, about the impact that he had on you? And I said, uh, I don't think so. He said, well, you probably should. And my wife went out and she, you know, we were there drinking Jack Daniels into the evening. She came back in with the iPad. She said, is this him? She had up the the iPad. That's him. She'd found him at a school in Canada where he was teaching. So I emailed him. Are you the Mr. Baldwin who? He came back. Yes, I am. (laughs) Buddy Rich. Because he and I played drums. And that was almost like a code sort of thing. Yep. And so I arranged uh, when I was... um, in I was uh, where was I? I was at MDRT. Uh, for an MDRT, I flew to Boston where he was speaking at a conference, and I met him in the airport. We had three hours together in the airport, and I filmed him and videoed him the answer to his questions, and then I made that into a video, about a eighteen minute video, which I then showed at a client conference. So I showed the interview with him. We do client conferences once a year, so we have about four or five hundred people in a room. 
And I showed this and like people were in tears when they saw this, this, this kind of thing. And I finished it with it was with who in your life has, has changed your life and who should you contact and thank now? And I've had so many notes and so many emails from clients saying, thank you very much for that. I contacted my teacher, I contacted my friend, I contacted whoever, and just to say thank you. And you know, it just it just goes to show the, the, the range of influence that we can have in, in our, our fantastic business of financial advice. It's not just about the money, it's about those other things which come from it, you know, without planning, really. Yeah, beautiful story. And making such an impact to their lives, knowing that they did leave footprints and that they did leave an impact on other people's lives yeah. and hearts. So that, that's a great story. Actually, if you're happy to share that Vimeo link, I'd be happy to put that in the show notes. So if people want to watch that, they can go find the story. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, now, you said things weren't easy when you first started in business. So I love getting into the nitty gritty, you know, life's successful now, you've got a couple of businesses, life's good, you're not just drumming anymore. What sort of financial setbacks have you had to overcome? Well, you know, when Nan left me that £9,000, I thought, you know, at that day, I was probably earning £1,000 a month. So it was nine months of money. I thought, oh, this will easily carry me. And the company that I started with, started my own agency, they, they promised me a load of client leads. And when I got there, they gave me the yellow pages and said, they are their leads. <laughs> just, really? Is that mis-selling or what? <laughs> And they said, right, start phoning people, making appointments. And I remember that first day, I contacted 66 people, made more phone calls than that, I contacted 66 and made three appointments. Wow. So I figured a one in 22 closing rate was okay, until two cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> one in 66, yeah, your odds were getting worse. Yeah, I suddenly realised, you know, cold calling is not it. And so really, I had no idea what I was doing. So things just got worse, and I spent that £9,000, went negative and... You know, it got to the point where, you know, I was out doing appointments all day. I'd come home because I had two daughters, so I'd like have tea with them, and I'd go out and do the evening appointments. I'd get home about ten, ten thirty, and then myself, and my wife, would sit there and pack Valentine's cards to make extra money to pay for the nappies because we literally had no money at all. And it's, I think, going through that kind of pain has added to my caution even more. And as, as my businesses have got stronger, I've realised the importance of having strong reserves within the company and having strong personal reserves so you can protect yourself against that kind of thing. Because it was a very painful time. As it was in um, 2008. Now, now, I'm not talking about the global crisis. I'm talking about in the UK, they changed the law on a bit of tax legislation. So in 2008, they changed the law, which meant that people, we were selling a product which reduced inheritance tax by half. And we'd just done a big client seminar and to attract clients. And we'd had about 30 people say, yes, they want to come for meetings, that kind of stuff. We were driving back in the car and we had the radio on. And the chance was, had the budget going, which is the annual thing where the, the chance to change all the tax rules, what have you. And he said, and we're going to change this rule so that people don't pay this amount of inheritance tax. Instantly, that one product, which is our biggest selling product, disappeared overnight it's almost like the, you know the government saying we're going to give everybody a brand new car when you can drive free you know it's like that's what it was and i remember, i still remember the figures we had two hundred and forty-eight thousand pounds fees that people had paid in advance because we took fees up front in advance to put these things in place because we had about probably about 50 odd you know plans in place which we were going through and people had paid for this thing all of a sudden they didn't need it it was given to them free so we effectively had to give back Two hundred and fifty thousand pounds to clients. Yeah, you're not expecting that. And then, of course, all the prospects we had suddenly disappeared because our, our biggest selling product suddenly became banned. 
it wasn't like we had any preparation for this. It just happened on that one day. And again, that was another learning experience. I mean, you've got to have money in the bank. You know, if you don't have money in the bank, then, you know, whether you're an individual or a business, you know, you're in a risky position to be. Mm. So aside from the book, The Richest Man in Babylon, which you're actually not the first person to mention, what um, other top tips have you been given or the best financial advice that you've come across or that people have shared with you? Well, interestingly, from, you know, apart from that technical stuff which we do when we talk about just good financial principles, pretty much everyone says this, the same thing, whether it's T. Harvecker in, or you talk about um, Jim Rohn, The Art of Exceptional Living, or even Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz, all of them say the same thing, which is pay yourself first. Now, when you get some money, learn to live on, whether some say 80%, some say 60%, they say learn to live on that part so that you can take the rest the other 30% and do something important and interesting with it. And I taught this to my daughters, and I teach this to the clients, and it's over and over again. It's you've got to learn to live on less than you than you earn. Sorry, yeah, you've got to learn to live on less than you earn, which is fairly obvious, but of course m- most people don't do that, and especially millennials. And I don't want to do that, have that whole millennial kind of like debate. <laughs> live on 120% of my income. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, because, of course, it's really important. Yes, you must have... Sky TV, as it is over here. You must have the latest iPhone. You must have a dishwasher. Uh, you must have all these things, otherwise you haven't got a, a reasonable life. Whereas what Jim Rohn talks about is, no, actually, if you're living on 70%, you live on 70%. If that means you can't have a new iPhone, it means you can't have a brand new car, you've got another one. If that means you need to have a slightly smaller house, that's what you should do. Because if you do that in the short term, the long term will be in a much better position. You know, I remember um, one person telling me they couldn't afford a dining table for years, so they had off the ironing board. And we actually um, had an awful dark green plastic outdoor picnic table that we dragged in. <laughs> so I, I went through the um, I couldn't afford a dining table for a while till a mate of mine who was an upholsterer got paid in furniture from a motel and took pity on us and gave us a dining table. <laughs> but it was just that I'd stopped work. I'd had two small children by the time I was 25 and it was just that really hard lesson to live within your means and you just have to do what you have to do. So that's obviously the big lesson you've taught your girls that they're older, like later 20s, early 30s now, your girls? Or Yeah, I've got uh, two daughters from my first marriage. Uh, Emily's 31 and Hope's 29. And interestingly, I, I was talking to Hope about this fairly recently. She came over and we we're talking about one of our best friends, Ellie. And when they were probably early 20s, late 1920 something like that they were going to nightclub and so she'd asked me if I could give them a lift so I said I can't I'll give you a lift to this this, this nightclub and so I took her and Ellie and they went to this nightclub then they went to the, the service till to get some money out of the, uh, out of the service till for, for that the night and Hope put a card in pressed the buttons and it came up saying do you want a balance and Hope clicked yes and it came up with something like £2,500 and Ellie standing next to her said God's hope, we've got so much money in your account, let's take some money out. And Hope's going, no, 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 you don't understand. She said, that's, I can only take money out of my play account, the rest of it is my financial independence account, I can't touch that. And then he looked at her as if so she was a, you know, an alien saying, what are you talking about, your financial independence account, you know? <laughs> but now, you know, Hope's 29, she, she doesn't have a, a better paying job than all her friends, she, they're all about the same. But you see, she's significantly more wealthy than all of her friends. Her, the property that she owns, and most of her friends don't own any property because they didn't have any deposit to put down, but she did because she saved. 
So I know she's got her you know, spreadsheet to be financially independent by the time she's 40, which is defined as having a million pounds. You know, that's how she defines it. And she's got this house that's better than anybody else. And I say, yes, she works hard and she probably puts in more than most people, but still she has her rules. 30% goes for long-term savings, goes into the financial independence pot. And, you know, I had my play pot, which I can blow it on whatever. So in 10% money, she can blow. And she's very disciplined with that. And that comes from that simple process of having these pots, which again, is just a very simple financial planning, which I think as financial advisors, we can get too wrapped up in the technicalities of tax planning and asset allocation, all that kind of stuff, all of which is important. But when we speak to a client, and with a company name like Wills and Trust, obviously we do a lot of estate planning. Most of our clients are in their 60s and 70s. But what we always say is that if you're going to pass the money down to your children who are probably in their 40s, that kind of thing, and to your grandchildren that might be in their 20s, how do you know they're going to use the money properly? So if we're going to set up this estate plan, what we must be doing at the same time is we've got to educate your, your children and grandchildren. We've got to teach them how to inherit. And so every year we run a next generation workshop for the, for the children of our clients. We usually get 100, 120 people there. It's on a Saturday morning. And we literally spend the morning teaching them how to inherit about what you do when you receive large sums of money. If you've not earned the money, you treat it very differently than if you've earned it. And all our clients will die with too much money because they don't spend it and they've spent all their time earning it. But it's that old adage, isn't it? If people win the lottery, then they are poor again in three years. Yeah, well, I had this situation, this guy, so mum and dad had died and I had a, a, a probate meeting, so post-death meeting, and it was with the two sisters. I was in the room, the two sisters were on my right, the brother was on my left, and the uncle, who was executor, was at the far end of the table. And the lawyer was in doing some bits and pieces, and he'd gone out to get some paper printed, whatever. And I said to um, the guy, I said, so what are you going to spend your money on? And he was going to inherit something like about £300,000. And this was only just before lockdown, 18 months ago. And so uh, I said, well, what are you going to spend your money on? He said, oh, I'm going to buy a car. I said, oh, right. what are you going to buy? He said, well, I was thinking like a DB7, DB8, something like that. They never go and buy a cheap Fiesta or whatever it is. They always go and buy this car. And I said, okay. I said, how much do you think that's going to cost? He said, oh, I'm not going to buy a new one. So probably about 70,000, something like that. I said, 70,000 pounds. He said, yeah. I said, you're, you're, because his dad was a plumber, owned a little plumbing company. Not massive guy, him and two other fellas. And I said, how long do you think it took your dad to save 70,000 pounds? He went, I don't know. I said, you've got a very good idea, haven't you, how much your dad earned? If he was saving money out of that, how long would that have taken? He went, oh, I don't know, three, four, five years, something like that. I said, well, yeah, probably about right. Do you really think your dad would have saved half for five years? <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, I'm using him on that. <laughs> and the two girls went, see, told you, told you, told you. <laughs> so, you know, uh, people don't know how to inherit, you know, and, and, and I, I think... Uh, as financial advisor, I think that's part of our job, especially if we set up life insurance and we do all that kind of stuff. It's not it's no good just working with the client. We've got to work with the beneficiaries to teach them how to inherit as well. And that's important for us to know first before we can, can pass it on. Absolutely. No, it's a, a great idea, the intergenerational planning, especially as the baby boomers age and pass. They're talking about, you know, this will be the greatest intergenerational transfer of wealth like in the history of mankind so it's it's a big thing we're talking about here that so yeah, yeah. I, and i'm also really impressed with your daughter that she actually listened to you <laughs> i 
I don't know how many dads yeah. are going to listen to this and go, my daughter wouldn't do anything I told her to do. <laughs> Only one of them did. The other one not so much. But one of them did. It's yeah. obviously worked out for her, so you can say I told you so at some stage. So obviously it's important you talked about the pots or the tins for your mum. Other people use the envelopes or sub accounts, whatever. That works. So is it important to you and do you still run a personal budget? Um, I do find not so much in that way. I'm fortunate enough to be financially independent now, so it's it's not so much a, a big thing. But yes, when money comes in, I still have the pot. So one of the biggest things for me is I take a certain proportion that goes into the charity pot because probably I, like you, end up getting no end of emails and phone calls saying, would you sponsor me for this? Would you sponsor me for that? That kind of stuff. So I like to make sure I've got that pot. So when I want to contribute, I can contribute significantly. So, you know, I still have that pot there. Uh, we still operate the play pots. So when money comes in, myself, my wife, we have our own play pots now. Money goes into play pots. That's money that you can blow and do whatever you want without feeling guilty, that kind of thing. Uh, and we still have the financial independence pot, which you know, fortunately is big enough for us to you know, live off now. We're quite fortunate, but there's no reason why we shouldn't still uh, contribute that. So we do, but it's slightly changed because once you become financially independent, you have to think about it in a, in a slightly different way. And it is thinking about well how are you going to use it if you don't you know if you don't spend it all and part of that is who do you help and, and why and what is your definition of charitable help and it doesn't just mean giving money to charities it means who in your family would you help how would you help and what would be the process of of, of doing that kind of thing so yes i do but it has just changed slightly once you get to the point where you are financially independent you can buy jack and aston martin there <laughs> Well, they are saying that maybe kids these days won't even drive by the time, you know, next 10, 15 years. So we'll see if that plays out or not. Yeah. I said said to my wife, I said, um, uh, as we're coming to the summer here, I said, I want to go and buy a Jeep. No, a good old-fashioned Wrangler with no roof, no doors. And I would be able to take Jack out camping. That's what we're going to do. And in our financial services practices, we built a massive thing based on investing only only for ways to save the planet rather than destroy it. It's called the Attenborough Scale. It's all based around the work of David Attenborough, which I'm sure you would have heard of. And in in his uh, last book, he uh, talks about the five ways we need to save the planet. We actually have an investment strategy revolving around those five ways because we want people to, if they want to, be involved in that, uh, invest in such a way that saves the planet rather than destroys it. And so in doing that, my wife said, no, you cannot go and buy a four-litre Jeep and drive that around if you're trying to encourage people to invest in ways to save Walk the talk, David. Yeah, you've got to, yeah. So I mean, and I have a Tesla, which, of course, everyone has a Tesla because it's like the thing to have, isn't it? But we made a rule that we're not allowed to buy any other cars unless they're fully electric, not hybrid, fully electric. So we're, we're desperately waiting for a fully electric four-wheel drive, something or other, to come out so I can drive this big thing around and go camping with Jack. <laughs> Do you find there's much uh, more interest from your clients now in socially responsible investments and those that support the um, sustainable development goals of the world? Yeah, there is. And, of course, you know, you see that, that coming in with the millennials. But what I see very clearly is that people go on the journey. When they have no money, they want to do that. When they get money, they care less about it and care more about the money. And that is a, a real journey that people go on. We did a, a survey of our clients, not this January, January beforehand, just before we went into lockdown, asking them, would they like to be able to have the option to invest in investments which promoted saving the planet? You know, that sort of wording we use, something like that. And something like 90% came back and said yes. 
And then we said, what conditions? And pretty much everyone said, I'll do it as long as it doesn't cost me anything. So they weren't prepared to give up returns or to pay more money to do it. So, of course, it's easy to say yes if it's not going to cost you anything, isn't it? Wow. You know, so the real question is how much you're prepared to pay, whether by different return. None of us really know whether those investments do better or worse because we don't really have any ballpark on that yet. But certainly, where we've built these portfolios, they are more expensive because we're buying more esoteric investments, which are tougher to get into. Perhaps there's less liquidity, so you give up some liquidity for it. So the question is, are people prepared to give up other things such as liquidity? Are they prepared to pay more? to invest in those kind of investments. And as I say, people start off by saying yes when they don't have much money, but when they have money, they get uh, they think about it very differently. So we're having to work really hard to try and build this so that people can make a, a yes and informed decision, but without paying an arm and leg for it. And unfortunately, until we're probably five, six, seven, eight years down the road with this, where we can show some performance data, it's really difficult to say whether these things are going to do better or worse. And that's the first thing they say is, well, yeah, well, these investments do better for me. What will they be worse? And I'm like, I don't know. Because guess what? Tesla wasn't around in 10 years, uh, 10 years ago. So we can't tell you what it would have done. And, you know, the other big one is like, well, why don't we invest in Netflix? That's not going to you know, destroy the world. <laughs> wow. Doesn't necessarily help it either, does it? What are we trying to do? And so this is why it's so difficult. You know, this socially responsible, this sustainable thing. Which is why we kind of aired on using the principles that David Attenborough came about and created this thing called the Attenborough Scale. So you can either invest in that, make David Attenborough 100% happy or very sad. Where do you want to be? And if you're going to ask me what return they're going to get, I can't tell you. There is no history on, on that yet. What's the real reason you're doing it? Are you doing it because you want greater returns or are you doing it because you want to be seen to be doing the right thing? The other thing I see mm, is that... Feel good factor. Yeah, you see um, older people tend to do one of two things. Either they say, not interested, um, I want my X percent, therefore I'm not going to do that. Or they say, I want my BHP coal mine. Yeah, or they say, uh, <laughs> well, I love a little bit. That way I can tell my grandchildren I'm doing some of it and I'm doing my bit. I'm doing my bit because I've got a third in socially responsible, ethical, whatever terms you want to use, you know, in it. Um, so they're doing it because how they want to appear to somebody else. So it really is quite interesting as we've really got you know deeply into it and we've built some software which does it and uh, we're promoting it to other advisors in the UK so other IFAs in the UK can use what we built because it's really hard to build. It's interesting to see how clients are reacting to it because everyone says they want it and it's like everyone says they want an electric car until it's like, yeah, but it only goes so far. Oh, yeah, but once a year I drive 200 miles in one go and I need to be able to do that. You know, it's that kind of thing that you get. Yeah. Absolutely. One final question for you. You fell into financial planning from drumming. I don't think I've seen a, a bigger, wider career stretch than than that one. What benefits do you think clients get from working with financial professionals? You've been doing this a while. You've got a few businesses. Why do people keep coming back to you and, and what's what's the value? The real value is the confidence that it gives them. It's not about do they get better returns? Of course, we like to think that, and usually we do, but that's not what it's about. It's about that somebody else is looking out for them and giving the confidence that everything is happening at the right time and in the right place. Because there's a great fear of this, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out that clients have. Whereas if they know there's somebody else behind them, that's what helps. And predominantly, certainly in the way in which we work, where it really shows up is when somebody dies. As a financial advisor, yes, you can make him a couple of extra percent. You can reduce their charges. You can save him some tax. But, you know, you've got a husband and wife, and one day he doesn't wake up. What you do with a wife then, that shows the value of what we do. I had three weeks ago, 
I was on holiday, uh, this camping trip with Jack. And um, my. But not in the Jeep. And it wasn't in the Jeep. No, it wasn't. No. <laughs> uh, and um, the, the rules are when I'm on a free day, the staff can't contact me unless there's a death. That's the only reason, that's the only reason they're allowed to contact me on, on a free day. You know, Dan Sullivan's definition of free days. And, and I've got this thing coming through with that. This client, Peter, who I'd spoken to two days prior, had died. I was walking along the road and a car was going past, hit a horse box, and the horse box hit him and he, he was killed outright. And I got this message. And so uh, the first thing I did was to phone his daughter. Now, she'd phone into the office to say this happened, but I phoned her. This was late on the Friday night when I got home. Gosh. And the first thing I say is, like, Katie, the first thing to understand is don't do not do anything. Don't try and fix anything. Don't try and do anything. Don't do anything. Spend the weekend with your mum. Just look after your mum, Nancy, who's the widow. And then I'll talk to you first thing on, on Monday. Just you. And then we'll bring your mum in. Then we'll bring your sister in. Because Katie was the one who's kind of took control. And the text, I almost cried when I saw the text. Oh, thank you so much for being there. I can't believe you contacted me even though you're on holiday. You know, Dad always said that I should. you're the first person to call and he really meant it. So then I had that, what was a Zoom call with, with Katie, and then her mum came in, and then Lizzie, her sister, came in. And it was all about, don't worry, everything is in hand. Don't, do not do anything. Sort out the funeral, look after each other, don't do anything else. Sort out the funeral, that's it. We'll do nothing until you get past the funeral. And just, you know, it's one of the things I say to Nancy, because we have a lot of those calls, it's about knowing how to deal with them, and, and the best way to deal with it is, is humour, I've always found. And so I said to Nancy, I said, and of course, what you've got to remember is that Peter was one of the biggest pain in the asses of client I've ever had. And of course, they all laughed because that, you know, and I said, yeah, and I said, I said, Katie, your dad was, you know, he would never stop. I said, but fortunately, there's one thing that he did, uh, which I stopped him doing. And you might remember <laughs> yeah. this, Nancy. Um, and that was last time I saw him, which was like a year ago before the pandemic. He had this life insurance running for a million pounds. And he was saying, this is costing me £17,000 a year, David. I should just knock this on the head. We don't really need it, do we? And I said, you know what, Peter? Guess what? Don't tempt fate. Keep it going, right? Because I said, you're, you're getting on a bit now. He was 62, something like that. I said, um, it doesn't seem like it's 17000 dirt cheap for a million pounds worth of life insurance. And, you know, if you can sit now, all those payments you made have been wasted. He went, well, all right then, all right then. And I said, do you remember that conversation, Nancy? He said, oh, gosh, I do. I said... And we just checked, Peter did make the payments. So, and I know you're worried about things, but you know, within a couple of weeks, I'm gonna come over and give you a check for a million pounds and you never have to worry about money. It's not something you have to worry about. So you can still go to Atros. So, you know, yes, go to Atros this afternoon, buy lots of wine, or get drunk. <laughs> Celebrate, thanks, Peter. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course that made them, you know, it's one of those things that was funny as well as put their mind at rest. But also that shows the value of what we do, doesn't it? Yeah, and that is priceless. You can't put yeah. a value on, well, I paid you how many thousands in fees or an insurance premium that I thought was ridiculous. The fact that mm. he knew that if something happened, his wife and kids would be sitting there going, David said we could go and order a, a magnum of champagne. You know, that that's yeah, not celebrate his death, but to, you know, just well, you know, almost to, to thank him for yeah, celebrate his life. Yeah, celebrate his life, but also the appreciation that he did provide for those he would left behind, and that's a gift. Yeah, that's a real gift. Yeah. Oh, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today, David. Really appreciated your 
insights as the only drumming financial advisor that I do know. <laughs> I was a percussionist in high school. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> Yeah, More on the xylophone than the um, maracas, I think. So, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much again. It's been a delight to have you on. Lovely. Thank you very much, man. It's great to be here. Thank you. And that was another episode of Financial Secrets Revealed. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you got some nuggets of wisdom out of that guest and enjoyed listening to their story. If you'd like to know more, please reach out to me. My contact details are in the show notes or hunt down your favourite bookstore to find Financial Secrets Revealed and learn more for yourself. I look forward to hearing from you.